going. There it is. It's live. We're good to go. Have a good night. Okay. Um, well, I will skip the reading unless you are turned to the 119th Psalm. Are you there? Okay. Go ahead and read it. And I am not Jim. Okay. Psalm 119, verse 17, Gimel. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are accursed. Those who stray from your commands, remove me from their scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. The rulers sit together and slander me. Your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. Good stuff. Okay, we got that. I have not heard it did. It came on, so that usually sends a notification, but that hasn't yet. Okay. So that's Psalm 119. We've got Don reading today because we do not have a gym here. And uh, let's see here. What do we got? Where today is 3 November? Is that right? That's okay, right. 3 November. <clears throat> let's see what it says. 3 November. Okay, what a difference a year can make. On November 3rd, 1745, David Brainerd, a 27-year-old missionary to the Indians of Crossweeksung, New Jersey, baptized 14 converts. This was part of what he called a remarkable work of grace with which God had blessed his labors among the Native Americans of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. David Brainerd was born in 1718 in Haddam, Connecticut and orphaned at the age of 14. He was planning to farm the land he had inherited until he experienced a profound conversion in 1739. That same year, he entered Yale, aspiring to the congregational ministry. At Yale, he became a leader in the Great Awakening, a revival then sweeping New England. In his third year, he was expelled from the university when he was overheard questioning the salvation of a faculty member. And his expulsion or I'm sorry, after his expulsion, he continued his studies for the ministry, leaving, living with a local minister. I'm sorry, I'm getting lost here. Subsequently, he was licensed to preach and ordained as a Presbyterian minister. He became a missionary to the American Indians of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. On that Sunday, November 3rd, 1745, <clears throat> Brainerd joyously baptized six adults and eight children. One of them was an 80-year-old woman Two of them were 50-year-old men and who were notorious drunkards before putting their trust in the Lord Jesus. One of the men was a murderer as well. Because of the terrible lives these men had had, Brainerd delayed baptizing them until he saw a radical change in their lives. But changed they were, and Brainerd finally felt at peace about baptizing them. The baptisms of this day brought the total of baptized believers to 47. Brainerd wrote in his journal through rich grace, none of them have been left to disgrace their profession of Christianity by any scandalous or unbecoming behavior. A year later, this remarkable work of God among the Indians continued, but the work of David Brainerd was coming to a close. Brainerd, at the age of just 28, was dying of tuberculosis. He sadly realized that he must return to New England, where his friends and family could care for him during his last days. Desperately weak in body, on November 3, 1746, Brainerd spent the day bidding farewell to his beloved Indian flock. He visited each family in their home and exhorted each person from God's word. Tears flowed freely as he left each house. 
His farewells took most of the day, and in the evening he rode off, his mission completed. A year later, David Brainerd was dead at the age of 29. Did that not work? It, it didn't come to mind, but now it did. Oh. And, and it was recorded. It started from the beginning, but it was unlisted. Oh. So it's good. No. Okay. Um, got a reflection here. Our lives often have seasons. There are times when we are active in what God is doing and even see people put their faith in Christ. But there are other seasons when we are laid aside while others do the laboring. Ultimately, all of us will come to a final season when we will die. We do not know the order of the length of our seasons, but what a comfort to know that Jesus is Lord of every season. Ecclesiastes 3 says there is a time for everything, a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to rebuild, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance. Okay, good stuff there. I got, I know of two prayer requests. Yes. Doug! Over in Ireland, poor guy has gout in his knee. And that guy can't, and you know, my father had gout one time in his foot. And he says, it feels just like shards of glass inside my foot. So imagine that in your knee. He said he can't sleep. He's just miserable, the poor guy. So uh, keep dug in prayer. And then Victoria's mother has a very bad infection. She's uh, taken her mom to church, told her about Jesus. She's really not sure of her mother's state. And so she's concerned more about her mother's state but she does not want to lose her as well. So keep Victoria's mother in prayer. So there you go. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the many blessings of this life. We thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to pray for these people and any others who are in need of prayer right now through whatever reason, financial or physical or emotional or mental or spiritual. Lord, we just lift these things up to you and ask that you would intervene in their lives and uh, just give them comfort, give them assurance that they are, uh, that you are close to them and uh, that they are taken care of by your wonderful hand of grace. And Lord, we thank you for every, every good blessing that comes through knowing you. And we thank you for the chance to uh, have this class, to hear your word. And we pray that it would be a class that is uh, not wrong in doctrine. And if it is, if there's something that is wrong or lacking, please alert it to us so that we would correct it to your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Tom is, oh no, he's not here, is he? Okay, Tom's not feeling well. We need to keep Tom in prayer as well. Okay. Uh, and then um, I was asked about my shirt. This is a McDonald's hamburger shirt, first edition. Well, I uh, take care of 7-Eleven, and every day I go into uh, the dumpster at 7-Eleven and pull out all the recycles and recycle them. And last week I found $3 bills, and I found a bag full of coins, so that was profitable. But I also found two shirts and a pair of pants, which were way too big, and they were brand new. So I took them home and threw them in the laundry, and the pants went down to the projects for somebody that needs them. And uh, Sergio and I are now twins as we wear our hamburger rage. shirts. What's that? All the fashion rage. Yeah, this is the uh, the fashion rage right now is the uh, McDonald's shirt. The new trend. Yeah, wearing, I don't know how old it is because this is the old style of uh, arch. I don't know if they brought that back or if this is just an old shirt that somebody never wore. But there were two of them, identical. Ah, so there you go. Um, let's see here. We have, um, we're in the book of Colossians finally. And uh, we're, let's see here, Colossians chapter 2 and verse is it 15? I have 14 circled here. 
We did two you verses last week. Okay, yeah, I, I have 14 circled. If you remember on Sunday, there was confusion about where did you leave. Oh, okay. Well, all I know is I did two verses last week, right, and so I. Be, 14. Did we do 14? I don't think so. Anyway, um, I'll tell you what you can do. You can start from the top of the paragraph, and while you're doing that, I'm going to go to YouTube, and I'm going to see what last week's um, verses were because I, I really, I, I have 14, and the board has 15. Top so. of the paragraph for me is verse 6. So. Okay, well, that's fine. Read from verse 6, and I'll give me plenty of time. The NIV version, spiritual fullness in Christ. So then, verse 6, just as you received... Christ Jesus is Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through the hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Okay, and then verse 14. 14. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Okay, this version says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Okay, and I remember that now. It is 14 because I said that's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. And I can't wait to get to it next week. So had I just paid attention to what I had, you know. But a lot going on in this little brain. So, I okay, here we go. I will go ahead and read the comments here. And I hope they're fitting of this verse because, yeah, we'll see. Anyway, uh, where people go to get their theology explains where their theology stands, okay? Uh, I, what I mean by that is if I am not really well-versed in the Bible and I go to seminary and I go to a seminary that teaches the Pentecostal view of things, that's what I'm going to believe, okay? I've got nothing else to go by and I don't know the Bible, so I just assume that they know the Bible and they're teaching me properly. If I go to a school on Calvinism and they teach me Calvinism, that's going to be stuck in my head for the rest of my life and people get into that. Um, so where people go to get their theology explains where their theology stands. If you grow up in a church and you listen to the preacher and he's got this whatever aberrant doctrine and you're not one to read your Bible, you're going to have that same doctrine in your head forever, okay? I, this is just the way it is. If you attend the Jehovah's Witnesses and they tell you he is not God, then you're gonna believe that. And it's gonna take all kinds of convincing and you being willing to say I could be wrong for you to actually realize that Jesus is God because they read the same verses we do and they come to completely different conclusions. So where people go to get their theology explains where their theology stands. In the case of the Judaizers of the world, they would rather go anywhere than to Paul to get their theology. 
because Paul will completely blow away all of their arguments very clearly, very precisely. Uh, and, you know, they read those things. And I've seen people that take the simplest book that Paul has written. I really believe it is the simplest book that Paul wrote is the book of Galatians. It's so clear that if you read it without any bias, any presuppositions at all, you would have no doubt what Paul is saying. And yet people will analyze it and come to completely different conclusions because they already have it in their head that you must obey the law of Moses. And so whatever Paul is saying, it has no relevance to what they're actually, his words have no relevance to what they actually believe because they can't make the two coincide. So they just ignore what Paul is saying or they say it's, it doesn't say what it says. Anyway, um, God gave the people of Israel a body of law, which is termed what? It's called the law of Moses, okay? That's what it's called. It was, you know, or you could say if you're a Judaizer, or Hebrew roots per person, you're going to call it the Torah, okay? As it has a special meaning. Torah means, what does Torah mean? Why well, I'm asking somebody who speaks Hebrew. Instruction. It's, it's instruction. Torah is instruction, right? It's raining again. Thank you, Lord. Wow. Um, uh, it, 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 Torah it, it essentially means instruction. It is the law of Moses, and Torah can mean law, okay? A lot of people will translate it as law, but it is a body that gives you instruction on a particular matter. In this case, it is the Torah of Moses. Okay, so it was written down for the people, and it was maintained for their instruction and their life practice. It is what is known to us now as the Old Covenant. There's a difference between a testament and a covenant. The covenant was cut. The testament is what tells about the things that happened. That's why the New Testament does not specifically start with the New Covenant. It begins in the Old Covenant. Okay, so a testament and a covenant, you want to make sure that you separate the two. A covenant is something that is a, an agreement between a couple of parties or whatever, whoever it is. And in many cases, a covenant uh, involved actually sacrificing an animal and you passing through the parts of the animal saying that if I don't do or fulfill the requirements of this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me, etc. Okay, a testament is something that explains uh, like a will or it is something that uh, lays out the parameters of something. So the Old Testament and the Old Covenant are not the same thing. Okay, and the New Covenant came after the introduction of the New Testament, at least as far as the Bible is written. So kind of get a feeling for the difference between the two. But the law of Moses is known as the Old Covenant. There are other covenants in, by, in the Bible. Okay, God made a covenant with Noah. He said, you know, do this thing. And he made a covenant with Noah. And he made a covenant with David. And, you know, you got these covenants that are going on in the Bible. We're going to see a covenant right here in Joshua. Is that this weekend? Yes, this weekend. Nine, one through eight. We are your servants. Who's coming down to make a covenant with Israel? Gibeon, right? The Gibeonites, okay? So that's the subject of chapter 9 of Joshua. Man, is that wonderful. I just, uh, you know, it's been a while since I looked at next week. This is the first half, and when you have the first half, you get information. When you get the second half, then you get the explanation of the information. So next week's sermon, I just read it today to do some finalizing on the graphics and stuff, and 
I was just so happy to have read that today. It's something that I just needed after yesterday's debacle. And I was so excited after reading that. I've been on pins and needles all day today because it reminded me of what is going on with the Gibeonites. Because there's so much typology, it's hard to remember everything. But they are coming to make a covenant with Israel. Okay, we'll see that on Sunday. It's a great, great thing that's happening with Gibeon and Israel. Okay, so there's a difference between a testament and a covenant. Uh, you know, just to explain to the people online um, what happened yesterday, actually yesterday, the night before yesterday. I, it was two days ago and I heard a lot of noise and beeping and I look out and the whole light is, the whole world is lighted up. And so I thought, what's going on? I, I have a feeling I know, but I wanna go see. So I walked out. It's almost bedtime. It was like 7.30, so I'm kidding. Um, it was probably 8 o'clock. It was dark, and I walked out there, and they are getting ready to put in a telephone pole in front of my house, which they dug a hole about three months ago, and they just left it there. If an elephant fell in there, it would have been lost. But they just they left it there. And so they finally decided to come and finish this project. And so I showed them exactly where my Internet line was because it's right next to a... a junction box that's in the ground. And I said, there's an internet uh, line that goes here and there's one that goes over to my father's house. So just be careful when you put in this telephone pole. No problem, we've got it all figured out. The next morning at three o'clock, 3.30, I wake up and I turn on the computer. I click on Brave, uh, you know, the browser and it came up and I said, this is gonna work. And I clicked on a website and it says, you do not have internet access. They put a 45,000 uh, pound telephone pole on top of my dad and my uh, internet lines. And so we have no internet and they are not going to be fixed until next Wednesday. So at four o'clock in the morning, I loaded everything in my office, everything into the back of the truck and I drove it over here and I've been living here for the past two days. So day and a half anyway, and I've got to be here until next Wednesday. So I wasn't a happy guy yesterday, especially I was beat. Sergio had a really bad day. Uh, Lee had a difficult day. So we had, a lot of people had difficult days yesterday when I read next week's sermon, not this coming week's sermon, which is information, but next week's sermon, I was just so happy again. Oh, the, the word is wonderful. It talks about the covenant with, with Gibeon. And I really believe that you're going to enjoy what that is picturing, okay? You'll get the basis for it this week. You'll get the final information next week, and it is just a wonderful thing. In the coming of the Messiah, a new covenant was promised. Old covenant, new covenant. The new covenant is promised in the Old Testament, right? Jeremiah 31, 31. So you, you can see that a testament is different than a covenant. I'm telling you this so that you understand what's going on, okay? In the coming of the Messiah, a new covenant was promised. That is found, oh, here it is, found in Jeremiah 31, 31. With the introduction of the new, the new covenant, the old is annulled. Hebrews 7, 18. It was made obsolete. Hebrews 8, 14. It was taken away. Hebrews 10, 10. It is annulled. It is obsolete. It is taken away. In Ephesians 2, I believe it says it is, begins with A and ends with abolished. Anybody? Abolished. Okay. Abolished means it's done. It's gone. It's completely eradicated. Okay. So, it's obsolete. It's annulled. It's taken away. It's abolished. Well, guess what? That is what Paul is referring to here again in Colossians. You know, Jim came up to me after the, uh, we'll pretend you're Jim. Uh, uh, he came up to me after the sermon last week, uh, and he, uh, he, people have all these reasons for not believing, for example, in the Trinity, 
okay? And uh, we were talking about Mount Hermon, and I didn't realize that it had three hills on top of it, and all three are the same height. And it's an obvious picture of heaven. The Jordan is an obvious picture of Christ descending, all of that stuff we talked about. And I thought, I wish I had added that into the sermon that we were doing. And doesn't matter though. Jim walked up afterward and he said, you know, you wonder how many times God has to tell us something before we actually get it, okay? How many times has he told us in the New Testament that it is finished, it is annulled, it is obs? He keeps telling us these things. In the typology in the Old Testament, I bet you he has gone through the, the not the uselessness of the law, but the, the inability of the law to save anybody. In the typology, I bet you we've seen it 300 times. I, I, I bet you that's not a stretch. Sometimes I exaggerate and I'll say 4 million times, but it is so many times you have to wonder how people can't get this. Okay, they can't get these words here that are actually written in Colossians 3.14. That is what Paul is referring to here with the abolishment, the annulment, etc. The law of Moses was, as he said, here it is. Okay, this is, we'll just, the Ten Commandments, right? But we're going to call this, not McDonald's, we're going to call this the law of Moses, okay? That's just the basis for it, but we'll call that the law of Moses. Okay, what is this? Can anybody tell me what this is? It's wiped out. It's gone. That's the words that Paul uses right here. How many times does the Lord have to tell us something before we get it? It says, the law of Moses was, as he says, wiped out. The word in Greek is exalepho. It means to completely remove, obliterate, blot out, erase, wipe away, to cancel such as when rubbing out a writing or seal impression left on a tablet. It was used to cancel obligations and or entitlements to which extended benefits and entitlements. Okay, the law of Moses had, let me read that again. Now think of the law of Moses. It was used to cancel obligations. Well, that was something that the law of Moses was, wasn't it? They agreed to it and then he said, here are the provisions. And it was obligation after obligation, okay? And or entitlements. They were entitled to life if they did the things of the law, okay? So it had entitlements to which extended benefits. Well, eternal life sounds pretty good if you can attain it, okay? And entitlements. The explanation of the word is sufficient, but its use elsewhere testifies to the meaning. It is seen five times in the New Testament. They are found in Revelation 3, 5, 7, 17, and 21, 4. Each has the sense of either blotting out or wiping away, okay? In Christ, God has wiped out, Paul's words, wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us. So he tells us that the law is wiped out, it had requirements, and those requirements were not for us, they were against us. The man who does the things of the law will live. And the law was given to show that nobody for those 1,450 years lived. They all died. One of them was taken out at a, a type of rapture, we'll say. But other than him, every one of them died. They couldn't do the things of the law because if they could, they'd still be alive. That's the point of the law of Moses. It is called a tutor. It is there to lead us to Christ. Okay, the law stood against us by bringing death. 
That's all the law gave to Israel. It gave them nothing else except death, based on the provision of Leviticus 18.5, which said the man who does the things of the law will live. It didn't do that. It brought them death, okay? That is not taking that verse out of context, by the way. Leviticus 18.5 is very clear. As when we went through those verses, scholars gave all these opinions about what it means to live. And, you know, we'll just say Albert Barnes or Adam Clark. I just cited three or four of them. It means to be prosperous. It means to be content in life. It, it doesn't mean any of those things. To live means to not die. That's what live means. It wasn't talking about being happy or prosperous or anything else. It was talking about a state of existence. Okay? It's very clear. Go back and watch the sermon. Leviticus 18.5. Okay? Paul explains this in bringing death. He explains it in Romans 7, summing up this principle in verses 10 and 11. So, here, let me read you what it says. You probably already have it memorized, but Romans 7, summing it up in verses 10 and 11. And the commandment, the law of Moses, or the command to, to Adam in the garden, doesn't matter. A commandment is given, okay? And the commandment, which was to bring life, as Paul says explicitly about Leviticus 18.5, the command which, or to Adam, by the way, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Meaning, if you don't eat of it, you shall live. So it doesn't matter. You can have the command in the garden, or you can have the law of Moses, which explicitly says what he is citing right now. I'm going to start with verse 9. I'm going to go back a little. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. If God never gave Adam the commandment in the garden. If he didn't do it, then Adam would never have died. Can anybody disagree with that? He would still be alive to this day because there was no law to take his life. Okay? He gave him the law. He violated the law and he died. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And he lived 930 years life. And so we know that the Bible is wrong. No, he died spiritually the moment that he the cut was made and he died. That was it. It was done. The separation between God and man is clearly portrayed right there in the Bible. And then he lived out of physical existence until 930 years old and poof, he was gone. Back to the dust from which he was created. Okay, so I was alive without law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, Adam, Law of Moses, doesn't matter. I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. And it killed me. Well, that's what happens when sin enters into your life. It kills you. So thank God for Jesus Christ who has wiped out the handwriting of the law which was against us. That's the first thing he did. And then, as I said, at least in the past 45 uh, Bible studies, he is not imputing our sins against us now, now that we are in Christ. So we do not have sin because it's all been erased from the past, and we are not being imputed sin, and therefore we have no sin. That doesn't mean we don't sin. Don't jump the air. Don't make the uh, illogical conclusion that we can go out and do what the Bible says don't do. But we will not be imputed that sin. We will lose rewards and losses. We will make the Lord unhappy, and we will destroy the people around us in the process. All kinds of negative consequences for doing what we should not be doing. But the commandment is gone. Sin revived. I died. Christ has taken that out of the way. 
The law is a body of commandments, both moral and civil, which brings death. It does not bring life. Once again, testified to by Israel. Israel is the example for the world to see this. Israel is the example for the world to see this. Israel is the example for the world to see this. I can't say that enough. Look to Israel. Look to who is alive in Israel since the issuance of the law there at Sinai. Tell me who's alive other than one that was taken out before he had a chance to die. Anybody? Nobody. Okay? It stands opposed to us because we are incapable of meeting its demands. And so, God wiped out this handwriting, both moral and civil, that was against us. Okay? This is what he did. And which was, Paul says, it was contrary to us. If something is contrary to us, that means it is not does not have our best in mind. That does not mean that God did not have the best for the world in mind when he gave Israel the law of Moses. He did. And he even had the best for Israel in mind when he gave them the law of Moses. And we know this because he gave them provisions for release from sin under the law. Go down to, Is go down to Jerusalem. There's a sacrificial system I have set up so that you will be forgiven. And if you fail to do that... I have even the Day of Atonement for you. If you never show up in Israel, I'm sorry, in Jerusalem one time for your 10 billion sins that you committed this past year, I will still forgive you if you observe the Day of Atonement when the priest sacrifices for your sin. He made it so simple that anybody, if they just really had it in their heart to be saved, could be saved, okay? But the law was given to teach us that we are incapable of saving ourselves. What we need is God. He is our provision. He is our, our source of life. And that's the lesson that we need to learn. I feel so bad for these people that continuously, continuously go back to the law of Moses. And they condemn you. They tell you that you're not a good Christian because you're not observing the Sabbath. You know, now what did we pass on uh, last Saturday? We're walking down the road and there's this elegantly dressed older lady. And I said good morning to her and she turned to me like this and she said, happy Sabbath to you. And she had her Seventh-day Adventist badge on and I thought, she's not gonna make it folks. She's working her way to heaven and it's an infinite climb that she's gotta go through. You're not gonna make it that way. I feel so bad for these people that cannot understand Christ is the fulfillment of all this. It's right there, right there. Wiped out the handwriting. Let me ask you a question. Is the Sabbath a part of the Ten Commandments? Is the Sabbath, I'm sorry, are the Ten Commandments a part of the Law of Moses? Yes. Okay, there you go. It's wiped out. The handwriting is wiped out. If they can't get that, if something so simple and so basic, the Sabbath is a part of the Law of Moses, the fourth commandment, by the way. Now, that does not mean that the Sabbath also doesn't serve another purpose. We talked about that when we were in. Why? Because the Sabbath is introduced in what chapter? Anybody? It's Exodus. It No? No? It comes after 15 and before 17. Anybody? Okay. Exodus. Good job. Exodus 16, the Sabbath is introduced. Okay? And the Lord gave it to... Israel. He gave it to Israel. So it doesn't apply to anybody else anyway, but then introduced the law of Moses and it is codified into law. Okay, you have to go back and watch every single sermon on the Sabbath, and there's about 40 of them that talk about the Sabbath between Numbers, uh, Exodus and Numbers. It's in there, but to understand all that God is doing, you'd need to see them all. But it was something given to Israel 
Not to anybody else on the planet. It was given for a reason as a, does anybody remember the word he used? I am giving this to you for a, begins with an S and ends with an N, sign. It has an, I'm using this well today because people are catching on. A sign, yes. Okay, so it's a sign to the people of Israel. A sign is something that points to something else, okay? The sign is Christ, the, the rest that we enter when we believe in Christ, okay? So, um, and so God wiped out this handwriting, both moral and civil, that was against us and which was contrary to us. The word translated as contrary means to set over against or opposite. It is used one other time in the New Testament, in Hebrews 10.27. Now think of this. It is translated in Hebrews 10.27. The law of Moses is contrary to us. Hebrews 10.27 translates it as adversaries. The law is like an adversary to you. That's what the law is. There is a guy that I go to mission work every week. Now listen, I'm probably not going to go this week. So if you guys are out there and I'm not there on time, it means I'm not coming. Because, I listen, I, I've got all this work to do. I'm in another office and if they call to have the uh, internet fixed on Saturday afternoon. I need to be here to get that call. So I, I, I don't want to be not available for, so if I'm not at the projects, I'm sorry, okay? I, I don't know any other way around this and maybe they'll fix it tomorrow. We asked them to put an expedited fixing in just in case and we haven't gotten a call yet. But anyway, um, Hebrews 10.27, it is translated as adversaries. The laws are adversary. Because of our fallen human nature, the law stood against us. It was hostile to us as is an adversary. We can't live by the law. Why would we want to embrace it? Why would we want to walk up to the law and give it a big hug and say, you are my savior. It's not your savior. It's the one that condemns you. That's what the law does. It brings about condemnation. It brings about death, okay? Because that's the nature of the law. It's what happened to Adam. It's the lesson that happened to Israel. We need to learn the lesson of Israel. But it is God's law. It is God's standard. And so in order to rescue us from it, and the reason why I say us, even though we were never under law, I've explained this in a couple of sermons, how the law affects us and what it means to us, Jesus Christ is the embodiment of the law. It does not matter if Don Meisler was of Israel and under the law of Moses or not. He is going to be judged by God someday. Is that right? Does anybody disagree with that? He's going to be judged by God. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God's law, and he is the one that we are set against. Right? Does everybody got that? We're set against him. If we can meet his perfection, then we get in. Okay? It doesn't matter if he was under the law or not. He's being compared to the embodiment of the fulfillment of the law of Moses. And therefore... The law is just as binding on you because of the standard. Even though you were never under the law, you must meet the standard. Absolute perfection, and it's God's perfection. Does everybody get, yes. Did you have a question? You were smiling. No? Okay. I thought you were smiling or something, so were you pulling your, something. Anyway, okay. Um, God's law, God's standard. And so in order to rescue us, regardless of whether we are under the law or not, he did something marvelous by sending Jesus. Jesus lived the life we could not live, and then he gave up that life in fulfillment of the law which stood opposed to us. That's why when he was hanging on the cross, the last thing he said was, it is finished. 
Okay, the word used there is, anybody know the word teleo? Tetelestai is the form he said it in, but it's the word teleo. It means, it basically means paid in full. When you went to a market in Greece and you would buy something and you owed on it, you would keep paying on it and they'd have their, their counter there. And they'd say, okay, he paid off five uh, whatever Greek uh, denarius or something. Okay, he's got 27 to go. And you get down to the last one and you put it down there and they would stamp it. Teleo, tetelestai, paid in full. And you'd take that home and you had proof that you had bought that thing, okay? That's what Christ did. He paid the debt in full for us. It is finished, okay? There is a change in tenses here. Let me go back. He, the life he gave, he gave up in fulfillment of law, which was opposed to us. In that act, it says he has taken it out of the way. So you've got that. There's a change in tenses here. The having wiped out is in the aorist tense. At a specific moment, the handwriting of the law was wiped out, okay? And having taken it out, the tense changes to the perfect tense. It is taken out completely and forever. The aorist tense tells us that it happened. It's something that happened at a point in time. The aorist tense means that it is something that is done, but it, it, it could be at any point in time. It just means that it's done, okay? The, uh, what did I say? The perfect tense. It is completely done. It's not just that it's something that is done and may come back. If it was in the imperfect tense, it would mean that it's done, but it's, you know, it's kind of being done here and whatever. It is done once and forever, completely. As Christ said on the cross, it is finished. The debt is paid. It is paid perfectly, and it is paid forever. And this was accomplished through the death of Christ. God having, these are Paul's words now, here we go, nailed it to the cross. The verb is found nowhere else in scripture. It is an explanation of how Christ was affixed to the cross. And it is a metaphor for what also happened to the law. What Paul is saying is that Jesus' body is metaphorically used as the law itself. As he fulfilled the law, he thus represents the law. I, embodying it. I was just going to say I'd rather use the word embodying in my own commentary, and I looked down and I did. So he thus represents the law embodying it. He is the embodiment of it. So when he says that he took the law and nailed it to the cross, it means that Jesus, who embodies the law, was nailed to the cross. It's symbolism. Okay, that's what he's saying. He's using metaphor there. All right. In his death, the law died. The law which stood opposed to us, our adversary, is done. The verb is again in the aorist tense. At that defining moment, when Christ was nailed to the cross, the law was nailed to the cross. It all is accomplished. It is done, and it is done completely and forever. Now, I want to address something that I have seen people say. There's a guy that writes these, these things. If you ever listen to him, now the end begins. He's a big King James-only guy, and he always comes up with these articles. He's convinced that Macron is the Antichrist. He calls him the man of sin. He goes through all... I, I don't read the guy's articles, and when somebody sends me an article from him, I don't read it, okay? It, it, it's just a lot of uh, sappy theology. But um, one of the things, he got down on John MacArthur, and I've seen a lot of other people do the same thing. John MacArthur one time said that the blood of Jesus, and he was making an analysis of the blood itself, okay? The blood of Jesus, there wasn't anything special in it. He's saying as if it had some magical property. 
And all these people went crazy. They went absolutely ballistic. You'll see it on websites all over the place. He said that the blood of Jesus isn't efficacious. And that is not what he said. He was a human being that had blood in it, okay? The word blood in the Bible signifies what? His blood on your head. It signifies life or death. It signifies one or the other. His blood is on your head. His death is on your head. But it means his life because his life is coming to an end. Does everybody see that? You go through the Bible and when you see the word blood, you will want to inspect it. And you will see that blood is synonymous with, when it says that Jesus shed his blood, it means he died. It is synonymous with it. And that was the point that John MacArthur was making. I'm not a fan of John MacArthur and many of his points of theology, but I will defend a person when he is correct. John MacArthur was not saying that the blood of Jesus Christ wasn't precious. He was saying that it was human blood. It was the life of Christ, the perfection of Christ, that went out at the shedding of his blood, meaning his death. Same thing we're getting here as metaphor. The shedding of his blood, his life ended. That is the point that MacArthur was making, and people have twisted that, and they've maligned that guy over something that he was not wrong about. He was just simply saying he was a human being. He had real human blood running through his vein, and guess what? That blood carried all the way back. We know this because it says that he is of the seed of David. He was a human being that descended from David. Now, how God, you know, did it in Mary's womb, I don't know. And I don't think anybody here knows. I'm sure that somebody has an analysis out there that probably comes pretty close. But the point being is that he is fully God and he is fully man. The blood signifies the life and hence the shedding of the blood signifies the death. So here we have, once again, we need to get theology straight and not get caught up in goofy analyses that people do because they don't like somebody. As I said, I'm not really keen on John MacArthur and many of his points of theology, but he was not wrong in what he said. He was making an analysis of what occurred. Christ died, okay? And this is what Paul is doing right now. What Paul is saying is that Jesus' body is metaphorically used as the law itself, okay? The verb is again used in the aorist tense at that defining moment when Christ was nailed to the cross, the law was nailed to the cross. Okay, so here we have the picture. Four nails, maybe three if his feet are like this. He's on the cross and he's got the nails in him, okay? That's the law. Paul says that's the law. Christ's heart is beating. It's beating. It stops beating. The law died. It's dead. That's the point that Paul is making. The law is gone, abolished, set aside, obsolete, uh, annulled, wiped out. That is the point that he is making. I don't understand how people can read this book and see the glory of what God has done in Christ and say, I don't think it was enough. I'm going to go back and I'm going to do better than he did. Thanks, Jesus. Good to see you up there. Imagine that. Imagine doing that when Christ has done everything for you and me. I just can't even, I can't even comprehend the arrogance of people that would dismiss what Jesus Christ has done. I'm actually angry and I'm sorry, I don't like to do that, but I, I get so passionate about this because it's so important of what Jesus did. And it is so blasphemous to say that it is not sufficient for you and for me. 
There is no understanding of the word grace in that type of theology. None. There's none. Okay. Question. How can it be that you would desire to go back to the law which died with Christ's death? What type of perverse, unholy attitude would you display towards the work of the Lord? Was what he did for you of so little value that you would tread upon his shed blood by reinserting a law which was annulled through his death? May it never be so. As a point of doctrine, the law remains in effect for those who have not come to Christ. Does everybody understand that? Israel rejected Christ. They are still under the law. That covenant remains with them. And that standard, even if we have somebody that's visiting today sitting right over there and he's not saved, okay? The chair is empty for the people online. Nobody's sitting there. I'm using an example. He's not saved. He may not be under the law of Moses because he is a Gentile, but he is going to be judged by the standard which is Christ, the embodiment of the law of Moses. It doesn't matter if he's under the law or not. That is the standard that he must meet. So listen to it again. The law remains in effect for those who have not come to Christ. In Christ, we are judged by Christ's perfect fulfillment of the law. For those not in Christ, they will be judged by the revelation God has given them. For Gentiles without the law, they will be judged by God's general revelation. For those with the law, they will be judged by that specific revelation. In both instances, only death can be the verdict because the embodiment of God's law stands there judging them. In Christ, only life can be the outcome. Life application, the law is fulfilled and annulled. Get over it. 215. You know, if you've got something to interject, because you're right here in the... Yeah, the you, no, you go ahead anytime. You know, Jim loves on. to do that and... I, I just, he, he gets us going, and I like that. He stimulates my thought, and they can hear you perfectly, so. Okay, back to the NIV, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Okay, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Yours said what? Read it again. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing oh, okay. over them by the cross. So it does say of them as well. Okay, good. All right. I, I was thinking it said over twice, but it only said once. Okay. 2.15. The commentary here will be a bit long, but it is hoped that you will receive it gladly despite the length. I did that because it's a typed form, and when I send it out, it was longer than what I normally would send out. And uh, nowadays, that commentary, whatever it is, is very short compared to what we're doing in Acts because there's a lot of information in the book of Acts. So, um, the first word of this verse in the Greek has brought about innumerable commentaries of great length and of endless speculation. Have a wonderful night, you guys. Be blessed. Uh, I better read that again. The first word of this verse in the Greek has brought about innumerable commentaries of great length and of endless speculation as to its true meaning. It is apekduomai. It comes from two separate words joined together by Paul to make a new word. And when I say that, there are words that Paul will coin. You'll not find them in any Greek literature before. And other words in the Bible do this as well. This isn't unique. There are quite a few words in the Bible that are not seen anywhere else in Greek literature. And we do it all the time. So don't think there's anything wrong with this. 
uh, you know, we'll take two words and we'll just make a funny word out of them. I do it, you know, to my son probably 40 times during a conversation. He and I will just make up words. We'll, we'll be driving somewhere and we'll, we'll just make up words. And they're words that we would both understand because it's taking two words and making a new one. A anybody ever do that? I, I revel in doing that. Okay. Anyway, so here are the two words joined together by Paul. Apo means away from. And ectio means go down and completely away from. Thus, it means to strip oneself, okay? Helps Word Studies notes that the double prefixes apo, ek, strongly emphasize the depth of the renouncing. This renunciation, stripping right off, is very emphatic. That's Helps Word Studies. Paul uses this word, which he coined one more time in the New Testament, in Colossians 3, verse 9. We'll get to that probably in another week. We're almost done with these verses, okay? Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds, okay? Same word. He coined it. He used it twice in this epistle, and that's all that we know about this word. But it's obvious from the, the different pieces of what it is, okay? So, in that verse, there is little disagreement as to its intended translation. Because of the context of the words of this verse, scholars and translators alike have tried to come up with words which agree with their presuppositions about what Paul must be saying. When I say presupposition, that means that you already suppose that Paul has something on his mind. Now you need to get a word that you suppose he means to match that. And I will admit, when I go through the sermons on Sunday, and I come to a word, and everybody is translating, say it's a noun, and everybody's translating it as a verb, I will try my best to find a noun that will do exactly what everybody is saying as a verb, because I want it to be a noun, because that's what it is in the Hebrew. And so I hope that I'm not, but I'm sure that I probably am presupposing certain things about that word in order to translate it. I don't want to do that. I want to take what the word actually means and I want to use it as a, or give it as a noun, okay? And this happens a lot because it's very hard to take some words that a person uses as a noun in Hebrew and actually translate it as a noun in the English. It's just not easy. And so it's just easier to change it into a verb and say we're going to make it a verb. But when I make a translation, I always try to say, this is a preposition, therefore I am going to keep it a preposition. This is a verb, I'm going to keep it a verb. And this was especially so when we went through the Song of Moses. If you remember, it didn't sound right when I was reading the translation I did because it, it sounds cumbersome. But that's okay. I want it to read as it was written by Moses as inspired by the Lord. And so that's why I did that. It doesn't help anybody with anything, but it gives you a better clarity of what was expressed originally, okay? But a presupposition is doing exactly that, but saying, I think that Paul is saying this, and so I want to translate it with my thoughts in there. Well, sometimes you have to do that, especially when you have no idea what Paul is saying, and so you got scholars that disagree, and so they all come up with their own words. Anyway, here we go. Because of the context of the words, Scholars and translators alike have tried to come up with words which agree with their presuppositions about what Paul must be saying. As it is in the middle voice, it is to be taken as meaning from, not for. In other words, it would not mean he stripped for himself something, but rather he stripped from himself 
something. Everybody see that? The difference in the middle voice. You've got the active voice, you've got the middle voice, whatever, okay? The passive voice, all right? You've got these voices, all right? He stripped from himself something. The pulpit commentary notes that Paul employs compounds of deal in the middle voice 17 times elsewhere, and they are always in the sense of putting off or on from oneself. As noted, there are uh, there is a long list of ideas as to the meaning of the first clause because of this unusual word. Okay, some see this as having put off the body of his flesh. This would mean that he put off his physical body and in the process he disarmed the principalities and powers which held sway over the physical body. Okay, this then would closely align with the thought of Colossians 3, 9, which I just read you, where the old man is stripped away. However, Christ did not possess the old man, did he? He was never what we would call the old man, the body of flesh. I, I'm sorry, the body of sin of the flesh. He was like the old man. He was made like sinful man. In the likeness of sinful, in the likeness of sinful man, but he was not a sinful man. And so, does that work? Christ did not possess the old man in his flesh. He is the new man. The context cannot be speaking of this. He couldn't have put off the old man because he was never the old man. Others see this as having stripped away the angelic hosts through which the law was given. Okay, I already disagree with that one because I do not believe that the law is given through the angelic hosts. It says in the book of Hebrews and I believe in Romans that the law was given through angels. Well, the word angels means messengers. That's all that word means. It can be a divine messenger, it can be an earthly messenger. The same word is used in both testaments to refer to both. Who were the messengers? I've said this in several sermons and quite a few New Testament commentaries. Who were the messengers? Moses and Aaron. They were the ones that received and gave out the law. We know that Aaron is included in this because at times it said, and the Lord spoke to Aaron. Okay, so I disagree that it was stripping off the angelic hosts. Okay, but this would stand against the false teaching of the Judaizers. Others see this as Christ having divested the armor of the infernal powers of darkness, which is a little poetical, but it doesn't really mean anything. That's John Gill. But this would not suit with the middle voice of the verb. On and on, commentators have gone, attempting to translate this verb in order for it to make sense. Charles Ellicott gives one possible translation as, having unclothed himself, he made a show of principalities and powers. It's Ellicott. I like him. He's got a lot of good ideas. He's got some that I didn't like in the past two weeks that I read, but I'll forgive him of that because it's not in me to uh, hold it against him. But he, he said some things that were so, so not correct about the law and about grace. And he usually gets those perfect, but for some reason he wrote some, I don't know if he was quoting somebody and just not putting the quotes in there, but he is normally very, very good. I love Charles Ellicott's commentaries. I'll read it again. Having unclothed himself, he made a show of principalities and powers. Now, that could go both ways because he didn't actually unclothe himself, but he had himself unclothed, no doubt about it. He was hanging there just like a person would be when they were crucified. But I think it's more than that. It's unclothing himself as a human being, okay? After saying this, he goes on to say that there is want of a connection 
to the phrase except to define it as putting off the flesh, as was noted above. But as we have shown, this makes no sense because Christ was sinless. What needs to be done is to take the verb in its obvious, simple form. This is what Ellicott has done, except he then made an incorrect supposition as to what stripped means. It should thus be translated as having stripped himself, he made a show of principalities and powers. With this translation, there is no need then to allegorize the action by saying it must be referring to his flesh of the body. Okay? Instead, it should be taken exactly as one would expect. He stripped himself and was thus naked. Instead of there being a want of a connection, the connection is perfectly obvious if aligned with the fall of man in the first place, as in Genesis 2, verse 25. Let me take you over there. Genesis 2, 25. And I've got another point about this since I wrote this commentary that I'll make in a minute. 2, 25. Genesis, I've got to be in the right chapter to read it. Okay, Genesis 2, 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Okay, and then we uh, went into the Exodus sermons, and exactly right at the end of the Ten Commandments, the first thing to be introduced after the Ten Commandments, there's a couple verses in there that say something, but the first real thing that the Lord tells Moses to do after the giving of the Ten Commandments in the same chapter is what? Anybody remember? Building an earthen altar. The whole thing points to Christ. But here's what he said. He said, I'll start with verse 25, but that's not the one I want to get to. It's the last verse of the chapter. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you shall have profaned it. We saw that in last week's sermon. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. What is that speaking of? If you remember the sermon, it's speaking of the sin, that your sin will not be exposed on it. You'll have to go back and watch the sermon because I didn't prepare for this and I could give you more of the details, but it is it was very clear the way the Hebrew is written. It's not the way that you would expect it in the English, okay? It is pointing to this state of man. Anyway, go back and watch the sermon. Maybe I'll refresh on it myself and we can talk about that next week. Oh, wait a minute. There it is right there. Here we go. This lack of shame was because of their state of innocence. This is Adam and Eve back in the garden, 225. The man and the woman were naked and were not ashamed. But after the fall, this was no longer the case. What does it say in Genesis 3, 6 through 11? Okay, we know what happened. And let me take you back there, Genesis 3. And it says 6 through 11. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Okay, and then here it is. Have a nice evening. Drive safe. Immediately after the giving of the law, these words were spoken to the Lord by the Lord to Moses recorded in Exodus 20, 26. That's what I just read you. Do not go up on the altar uh, with, you know, stairs. You know, okay, I just read you that. In this verse of Exodus, I didn't know that I had this in this commentary. I thought I typed this before the Exodus 20. I didn't. In this verse of Exodus, it is not speaking of mere physical nakedness, but of what that nakedness implies. Based on what occurred in Genesis 3, shame of nakedness is how sin first manifested itself. And it was the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life by which that sin came about. Man wanted to be like God, rising to his level. The earthen altar of Exodus 20 was to be without steps because man cannot rise to the level of God. The higher the altar, the greater the sin is revealed, and thus the more nakedness is exposed. God instead made it known that he would condescend to become a man and meet man on his own level. What did they do with the altars? in Israel. They didn't just build altars, but they built them in a certain place. Where did they? It's all the way through the book. And even the best kings didn't get rid of them. In the high places. High places. Right. I'm going up to be like God. I'm going up to meet God. And it says every time, even with the best of kings, it would say, he destroyed all this, blah, blah, blah. He did this and he did that. But the high places he did not destroy. Even then, the kings that are the best kings of all are still just trying to work their way up to God. Jehoshaphat. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at that when you're reading Kings next time, and you'll see it again and again and again. But the high places he did not destroy. Solomon, where did he go? He went to the big high place of Gibeon or whatever. Okay? So, think of it. I'm going up. The higher I go up, the more steps, the closer I am to God. And God said, don't do that. That is the point of that. It has nothing to do with God seeing their private parts, which he knows everything about every person in the world anyway. It's the sin that is being focused on right back from the Garden of Eden. Christ, when he died, did not die with his clothes on. I assure you of that. He stripped himself. Even if they actively did it to him, he allowed it. He is the Lord God. So here we go. The higher the altar, the greater the sin is revealed, and thus more nakedness is exposed. God instead made it known that he would condescend to become a man and meet us on our own level. Here it is in Revelation 3.18. As Jesus speaks to the churches, he says, Revelation 4. No, that's John. Okay, went too far. All right, Revelation 3 and verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As Jesus speaks to the churches, he tells them about their nakedness. Well, what is the garment? It's to cover their sin. The righteousness of Christ will be imputed to them. Okay, so much for hyper-dispensationalism, by the way, if you think of the context. The nakedness of the body only pictures our revealed sin. Christ came to take that away and to cover us with his righteousness. It was he who hung naked on Calvary's cross so that we could be covered 
by him. His nakedness was without shame because he is the Lord without sin. And that's why he gave us what we could not give ourselves. Does everybody see this? He's taking a physical thing that happened to Jesus and he's now applying it to our spiritual lives because Adam blew it right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. Okay, this is what Paul is referring to here. It is a literal stripping of himself, exposing the innocence of the Lamb of God who bore no sin. In this, he did make a show of principalities and powers, Paul's words. Christ's sinless nature, seen in his exposed flesh, thus exposed the darkness of these forces for what they truly are. In so doing, he made a public spectacle over them. What Adam and Eve had attempted to hide and what the priests of Israel were commanded to keep hidden from the presence of an infinitely holy God is the sin nature of man. What Christ demonstrated was a sinless nature, proving he is God. His naked body there on the cross demonstrated this to them. He publicly shamed those powers and thus in stripping himself, he stripped them, triumphing over them in it. That's Paul's words, triumphing over them in it, meaning his cross. The final words of this verse in Greek are en auto. They are translated one of two ways, in it or in him. It's a masculine word, but it can be uh, uh, it as well. It would refer to the cross itself. Him would refer to Christ. As God is the subject throughout the passage, it is certainly referring to Christ, and it should be translated as in him. God made a public spectacle of the principalities and powers triumphing over them in Christ. Now I'm going to read this again. Think about what we just went through. I'll start with verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, the law of Moses, having nailed it to the cross. In that act, Christ's sinless perfection, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. Christ himself has done it. Okay, where are we? The final words of this, I read that there. God has made a public spectacle of the principalities and powers triumphing over them in Christ. Let me make a note right here. The seed of the woman promised just a few verses after the account of the hiding of the nakedness of Adam and Eve had done exactly what the Lord had promised. The head of the serpent was crushed. Sin was defeated. Christ had prevailed. This then is the correct translation and interpretation of what is otherwise a wholly misunderstood verse. If you disagree, that's fine. I am absolutely certain that this is what God is telling us. It is the act of being stripped naked in his sinless perfection. The human body, there is nothing wrong with it. It is the sin of humans that brings this about. As I said, God knows exactly what Aaron and all of the priests looked like as they walked up the altar. That is not what he's concerned about. He's concerned about their pride before him, their sin before him, and that's why he gave this earthen altar example, all of it pointing to Christ. Go back. It's a wonderful set of verses. I hope I did it justice, but that is what it is pointing to, okay? That's the correct translation. Having stripped himself, 
He made a show of principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in him, in Jesus Christ. Life application isn't the word great. It tells us of the marvelous work of Jesus promised since the beginning of time, and he came right on time to do what was promised. Take time today to thank the Lord for this marvelous gift we call the Bible, which in turn tells us of the most marvelous gift of all, our Lord Jesus Christ. How wonderful. How absolutely wonderful. I am looking at this, and I don't think we're gonna, I mean, it's, we got 20 minutes, but I was hoping to close a little early today because let me see how long this is gonna be. I, 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 uh, we're gonna try. This is gonna be a little long, and I'll try to go through it quickly. We'll get a third verse. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna try, 216. Okay, starting a new uh, Oh, it is, it's starting. You know what, let's do something different. Let's start, because it is. It's a new thought, it's a new paragraph. Uh, Next week is we're going to have to do those together, or we're going to—it's going to be no good. What can we, what can we do for the next ten minutes? Tell me something. Um, uh, I, I don't want to start and not do that together next week because these are really important verses. They also go against the Hebrew roots movement. Something. Not push-ups. Not. We're not going to do push-ups. I'm sorry, you you military guys. I was Air Force. I was not military. Okay. I didn't do push-ups. Um, let me think oh, here. I'm uh, sure you did in basic training. Uh, yeah, I probably did three in basic training. <laughs> yeah. They don't want to tucker out the Air Force guys. Let me go through here and see if I got something that I can pull out uh, that is uh, we can. Uh, uh, I, I must have something about Doc. You know what? I will read you something. I'm going to read you something without giving this guy's name. You're going to love this. Is that okay? You think it's good? Okay. I read something to Lee today, and I said I wasn't going to read it, but this will be a great, great thing to do. Hang on one second here. Listen, this came in the mail. This came in the mail. This is going to be good, and it'll be worth your next 10 minutes. Okay. I got this letter, and it came from, I'm not going to give any more specifics, but it came from a person uh, in a, an old folks home. But the name wasn't on there. It's just the name of the old folks home. That's that's all it was. And I'm like, you know, I, I felt I wonder what it is. And it's got my it name like on there. Writing. What? No, no, it's not Mabel's. <laughs> that was a good one, though. Okay, now this came in the mail, and I've gotten things like this before. I've gotten handwritten notes, and this is a photostat of it. This is not the actual letter. And I'm thinking, okay, when I get that, I always I get suspicious right away because people, what they'll do is they'll take a, a thing and they'll photostat it and send it out to 20 churches, and it's always something goofy. It's always something incredibly goofy, okay? And I, I'm just like starting, I'm like, I know where this is going, but I'll go ahead and read it anyway. I was completely surprised by this, okay? This is really something, and I'll explain why. I wrote a letter to this person just this afternoon. It'll go in the mail tomorrow. Okay, Charlie Garrett, October 28th. 2022. I should have wrote you earlier to tell you about a significant happening that I encountered on Wednesday, September 28th, one month earlier, and unbelievably, you have a role in it. Now, I don't want, this has nothing to do with me as an individual, okay? I, I, this isn't an exalting thing, is it? I mean, it's, okay, but this is something that happened to this person, and I'm thinking already, oh boy, here I go, you know, and so I'm already like, the truth is, I don't know you, and I never heard of the superior word church. Now I'm glad I know. I will try, and I, as long as I don't give the name, I don't think I'm giving anything away, okay? And I'll also take out a couple small details. 
because I don't want to give anything away and embarrass anybody. And this could be anywhere in the United States. It could be overseas. Okay, this is just something that came in here. I will try as much as I can to explain to you this remarkable incident and try my best to clarify to you and to the readers. So obviously other people have gotten this. That's why I got a copy of it. To the readers, so it will not leave the slightest doubt in their mind. I'm thinking, oh boy, I'm going to hear a prophecy about Nephilim flying through the air or something. About three months ago, my son, I won't say what state he's in, but he sent me pictures that belong to me. I left them in his house a certain number of years ago. He tells me how many, but I'm trying to give, not give you any information that could give away who he is. When I stayed with him a few months after something significant happened in his life, and you can imagine what it is, okay? I was delighted to get them back. Many of the pictures are dear to me, but one picture stood out, and I kept looking at it. It is a small, it's just this little two by two inches black and white picture taken in the year 1948. When I was, he was this big. I won't give the age, but he was just teeny. That day, Wednesday, September 28th, I woke up early around 4 a.m. and I went to the kitchen to get me a cup of coffee. Uh, a lady, won't give her name, she's a worker, came to talk to me. She showed me pictures of her children when they were little. I told her I have a 75-year-old picture when I was two and a half years old. Oh, I gave the age, I'm sorry. Anyway, I said he's small and you can guess. I went to my room to bring it and show it to her. All I know about this picture is what's written on its back. It says, Ein S. Sultan, Jericho, 1948, and a translation in Arabic. I went back to my room and turned on the TV to know the update on the hurricane. It is strengthening to Category 5, and it is approaching Fort Myers. I started getting ready for the day, and after I had my breakfast, I took my tablet and went outside to the courtyard and turned it to listen to a harp concert by uh, some French guy, Bourdieu, I guess, a French composer of the 19th century who lived the same time as Mozart and Beethoven. It's a beautiful piece of music played by my favorite harpist, and he gives the harpist's name. I guess it's okay to give it Marisa Robles, so if you want to listen to harping, listen to her. While I was listening to my music, I was suddenly interrupted. He's listening to his music. That's all he's doing. The music stopped with no reason at all. Instead, a man appeared on the screen wearing a hat and had a long beard. <laughs> I realized he's a preacher. First, I thought he's a Jewish rabbi, and frankly, I don't care to listen to Jewish rabbis because they don't believe in Jesus. So I was about to stop listening to him and go back to my music when I heard him say, Jericho. So I continued listening, and he realized, and I realized that he is a Christian pastor. He was telling how the prophet Elisha performed a miracle at Ein S. Sultan, Jericho, when he cured the spring's undrinkable bitter water to sweet, fresh water. I was stunned. I realized instantly that can't be a random happening. It is actually a, a mystical event. Prophet Elisha performed a miracle at the same location where my picture was taken. And because I did not know the narrative and connection between Prophet Elisha's miracle and the tiny picture taken at the same site, from nowhere a pastor popped up on my screen revealing to me the whole story. 
I invite anyone to come up with a different explanation and clarification otherwise. Now, I've always told you, I don't believe in these people that claim to be faith healers and all that, but I do believe in faith healing. I believe that God intervenes in ways at times when he wants to for his sovereign reasons, okay? And this is especially true for a reason I'll give you after I read this. Then I looked up on my tablet and found the source where that sermon came from. It is the Superior Word Church and he gives the address. Then I found where Sarasota is located on Florida's map. He didn't know. Sarasota is just 80 miles away from Fort Myers where the eye of Ian is going to hit. I'm getting all the revelations while, while the forces of nature are raging and the church is in its path. All I can do is pray and ask God to protect and bless the Superior Word Church and its pastor. So I opened the Bible to 2 Kings 2, 19 through 25 and read and wondered how God in his mystical way revealed himself to me through you to show me you know you how his divine nature can perform miraculous wonders to attract the peoples of the world to him so they may live in joy forever. Now, I will tell you that that sermon was never, he gave me a picture of him too, and he gave his name, but I couldn't read it. So I actually called this place and said, is there somebody with a name like, and I kept going and she says, yes. And I said, if she didn't want to give me his, you know, I understand that. I said, I want you to tell him that I am writing him a letter and I'll get it in the mail. Because if I die tomorrow or if on the way home, he's not going to get that letter. But I want him to know that I got it. And that sermon was never supposed to be written because it's in 1 Kings and we started in Genesis and we've been going through the Bible in order, plus a couple little books on the way that just to fill in between. But like Ron, who asked me to do the Acts 26 series, Jim emailed me one day and he said, Charlie, I, I am reading in 1 Kings or whatever, 1 Kings. He said, and I don't understand this passage. He said, would you explain it to me? And I said, Jim, that's a lot of information and it will take a long time to get that done. And he's like, oh, okay. And he just kind of forgot about it. Cause I don't want to just give people a, 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 an answer and say, well, this is what I think. I want to know what it means. So during my free time, I would go through it and I would analyze it. It took a long time, it took a long time. But anyway, finally enough and I made it into a sermon because you know, I've got all this information, I might as well tell everybody else too, and it'll help me to add to my sermons that I'm doing because I like to get ahead, so I'm way ahead in my sermon. So that was a good way of doing it. This is just something that came in, but it was never supposed to be typed. I didn't pick the passage. And thirdly, it's not on any general playlist where you would say, okay, you know what I mean? It's, it's just something that is tucked away and it should have been lost forever. I'm surprised that anybody could even find it unless you purposely went to that and looked for it. You couldn't find it because Google doesn't do that. They don't just throw things out that are, they just, it gets categorized and filed away and it's done. And it's so obscure that I did not remember that I had typed anything about Ayn S. Sultan. And so I actually went back and had to read the sermon to see if he was telling me the truth because it could have been somebody else's sermon. That's how obscure that was. And this happened. And I got to tell you what, the Lord does things for his purposes. So if you don't believe in the miraculous, you are not believing in the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible can do anything. 
and he has his purposes. I mean, my hair is standing up all over me. He has his purposes for us. So I understand that things are tough in life, and I understand that things don't always click, but sometimes they do for his reasons. And I don't know why this happened. I sent him a nice letter, and I thanked him, and I told him, write any time. If he wants to be a writing partner, I'll do that with him. But I'm so touched that this man stopped and prayed for the church and that it gave him something to understand his own past. I mean, I, I just, I don't know how the Lord does these things, but he does these things. So keep that in mind. We're going to close now. And what a wonderful story. Wow. Heavenly Father, thank you for how you weave things together, how good you are to us. And Lord, uh, it's time for us also to lift up Tom Alley. We would pray for him and we would pray that you would uh, uh, help him with his affliction. He's not here tonight, so please help him through that. And Lord, we do love you. We praise you. We thank you for the chance to be in your presence. And we just are so delighted to know you. Oh God, thank you for what you do for us. We pray these things thanking you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Uh, yeah, that's something. I don't. Is that, that is working. Okay, I'm going to put that on break.